Welcome to the Green Majority, everyone. My name is Stefan Ostetter. I'm here with hey. Lauren Latour. Oh, wait, I, saw, I saw your name. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. No, I love it. I love it. We are diving right in. We are on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or on the Harbinger Media Podcast. Check them out if you will not. Today on the show, we are in fact joined by a fellow Harbingerite, which I did confirm is how you say this, according to Jeremy Appel. I'm who's sorry. Our I'm sorry. No, would it not be a, harbi a harbinger? That's because what I you first are thought. the harbinger. I, I mean, no. I think I think Jeremy Jeremy's either misled or pulling your leg, as my grandma would say. We'll find out. I'll, he's I'll, trying, I'll follow he's up. He's trying to make fools of us. So, all right, my our fellow harbinger, Jeremy uh, Appel, who has just written a new book about Jason Kenny called Kennyism, and we are chatting with him about this new book and Kenny's general disdain and the ways that he went after environmentalists during his tenure, both with Harper and then also as premier of Alberta. Very interesting conversation. But before we do, Lauren and I are going to chat through some of the big news stories of the week, month, perhaps, depending on how long some of these things have facts. I would say a couple of them, definitely. Actually, honestly, I'm saying all of them. Biggest news story is going to happen this month coming at you right now. Dave Hostetter, who you may be waiting for, is off sick today, unfortunately. We're going to persevere. What do you guys say when I'm not here? I don't listen to those episodes all the time. Or do, you, do, you just, do you just not acknowledge it? Usually, Dave either makes up some story about where you're off to. Anyways, so the top news story today or this month. The most important thing happening in the entire world right now. I did not say the entire world. We are on, on <laughs> Toronto, Ontario-based show somewhat, but fair we're, enough. We're, Laurent we're Laurentian elites, you know? And so... What we're covering here, Doug Ford has actually released two new bills that we're going to talk about briefly. One is called the Get It Done Act, and the other is called Keeping Energy Costs Down Act. I am going to argue neither will do what he says. But but as as we were talking about before, it doesn't matter. It doesn't it like it. You know what I mean? Like they're so effectively named. They're so simple. Anybody knows what that is. Like it's yeah, man. I like what what a way what a way to administer a province just like make up make up bill names and make it as simple as possible as easy as possible for people to like not even remember but just like look at once and be like cool Doug Ford's saving me money cool Doug Ford's getting it done it's yeah it's it's pandering and it's like oh my god it makes me want to smash my head against a wall like my one note I wrote down was like who buys this Who's believing? <laughs> Who's believing these lies? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. And please, please continue with your with your explainer. No, totally fair. I mean, I, yeah, I don't. Someone must buy them, I guess. And what's incredible about the Get It Done Act is that it is just sort of a random assortment of things that we've all just accepted is now called an omnibus bill. Why is this a thing that we have accepted that you can just no. put in whatever you feel like into a bill and then be like, it's the same thing? No, like if you see a conservative with an omnibus bill, run, run the other direction. It's the worst thing in the world. And it's so funny because this is not just a Canadian conservative tactic. This is bad. I was talking to some international colleagues last week. Cannot remember where they were from. It could have been Brazil. It could have been Norway. It could have been anywhere. And they were saying that their conservative government was doing the same thing, introducing like sweeping legislation to like slash regulation across the board and calling it an omnibus budget bill. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we do that. It's, it's everywhere. They love the big bills. They're all about them. Because this act would, A, 
make it easier to expropriate land for highways and transit projects before environmental approvals. It would, uh, any future government would have to put on a referendum before instituting a carbon price, which I'll get to, which is also silly and wrong. But anyways, the third thing it would do is it once again alters municipal growth plans for like the fifth time in the last like two years. Like it keeps changing. I cannot imagine how it must feel to be a municipal planner right now. Who just constantly has the rules changed under them every and again. And in an additional star article that came out, I believe a couple of days after this bill came out, highlighted that some of these more technical changes that are hard to sort of parse out will very likely worsen sprawl. And then lastly, it just continues to like make things cheaper for drivers for some reason by basically making you never have to pay the $7 that would make sure that you renew your inner, your your car which also helps get it back when it's stolen. But who cares? Let's just allow that to continue and also makes no new highways have tolls on them, which is, again, no current plans that were there to toll highways, but that's a thing. So sorry, that, that's just referring to no new toll highways yeah. or they're removing toll? Oh, so it's not, okay, because I'm not going to lie. There was like the lizard brain part of me was like, sick, I can take the four of seven now. And what's amazing the is that the for, yeah, for, for, for listeners from outside of Ontario, the 407 is a, a toll highway that's quite expensive that stretches and kind of allows you to circumnavigate the GTA if you're cutting across southwestern Ontario. I never take it because I'm not made of money. And part of me was like, oh, wait, that's kind of sick. Well, but, one of the yeah. arguments against the 413, which is what this bill, this whole bill is basically trying to make it easier for him to pass this other highway, which is the 413 and the Bradford Bypass. and some of the arguments against these things is that if you just let trucks freely drive on the 407, you would solve all of the problems you're trying to solve. What's confusing about this whole issue is that like selling public goods to a private company that can make money for nine, nine years, which they did with the Highway 407, is not like a liberal ethos, right? Like this is was straight up done as an offload costs and a, and a money grab from a previous conservative government. And so this idea that now he's taken on tolls as the way to make it cheaper for driving is also sort of weird. There's a second bill, but maybe let's go bill by bill. So let's start there. Well, I don't know. Like this second bill is like pretty cuckoo to me, especially if you're considering it's like, I, I, I don't know. Again, I understand the twisted logic at play here in terms of just like like where they're going with this and the ways in which it propels businesses and like cuts red tape. But the second bill is just like, I don't know. T to me, I would be furious if I were a small C conservative because I'd be thinking, well, this limits the rights of the individual landowner. I can't see how this is something they could possibly support. And yet they'll spin it to be about business. So I don't know. Can 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 you just brief us a little bit on the second bill as well? Let me just combine the combo. For sure. For sure. So my understanding and correct me if I am I am wrong about this is that basically the Ontario Energy Board, which is supposed to be an arm's length part of the government, that it was going to require real estate developers to pay for the costs of new gas infrastructure up front rather than spreading out the costs by charging customers over 40 years. I, I'm, part of the idea here is that if they can spread it out, that makes it more likely that they will build these more now and we don't, you know, do we want to be locking ourselves into the gas infrastructure for the next 40 years? And that's an upfront cost to the government right away that the government's basically floating to these business owners. And the 
new bill basically undoes that. The new bill basically overrides this regulator, claiming that it will keep the costs of of of, of home ownership down, which is a quite a take, but that's the argument. And basically, sort of like gets rid of the fa- the idea that the OEB is a is an arm's length agency. It basically makes it just another wing of the of the conservative government, which you know I mean goes along with I think last year or the before. Doug Ford also basically defended his very political appointees to the board that chooses our Supreme Court judges by basically saying, well, what else was I going to do? Elect a liberal? I'm a conservative. Which is like, so you're just sort of seeing this pattern of making everything political and everything sort of aligned with your own view, even in these agencies that are not, that are very much designed to not be political. He's politicizing everything and using and sort of this like, well, what am I supposed to do argument? Well, yeah. And like and like with this one specifically with the OEB, the Ontario Energy Board, they were saying like, OK, well, like we're giving them time. They're going to go back and they're going to revisit their their regulatory proposal that, again, was drafted over years, from what I understand, with lots of input. And they're like, we're going to let them go back to it. But like we're not ruling out stopping it again, basically, if they don't give us the regulation that we want, if if if, if they don't if they don't change things accordingly. No, it th- these two bills between that, between overriding the OEB and like, yes, OK, sure, you're slashing red tape, you're making it easier for a company to come in and get and get it done. But like at at the expense of the homeowner, at the expense of not that I'm out defending homeowners all the time, but like at, at, at the defense of the individual, which is, I don't know, supposed to be something that you're that you're in defense of. And then on the flip side, you've got this other act. Oh, wait, I, I mixed up the names of the act. Sorry, that's the Keeping Energy Costs Down Act that we were just referencing with the OEB. The Get It Done Act has this, okay, this this issue of expropriating, which is a word that I had heard before, but I wasn't super familiar with. And I'm really glad this article kind of broke it down for us. And basically, expropriation is the idea that a landowner will be forced to sell their parcel of land to the government. And previously, there were like, obviously, like hearings that were put in place automatically when when the issue of expropriation came up. If the government were trying to force me to sell some of my land so they could put a highway through it, those hearings were done away with in 2020 under the Ford government. And now they're continuing to make it easier to to expropriate land in order to get these highways built. And it's like, I'm so I'm sorry. Are you kidding me? What conservative is is down with expropriation of land, of you forcing them to sell you their land, regardless, regardless of whether it's for a highway or a wind turbine. You know what I mean? Maybe I would care less about this if it were wind turbines. Maybe I would. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. But regardless, it's just like, I don't know. Come on, guys. Like, this is wild. Why are, and also, then the other thing was, it's just like, why am I reading about this in the Narwhal and on the National Observer? Why, how is this not like, banner news maybe it is maybe my millennial ass just needs to like i don't know turn on cable every so every so often but cuckoo banana stuff happening under the conservative government of ontario yeah for sure and it and it just to me goes back to the exact type of things that the constituencies that that doug ford cannot get enough of and like there is nothing the Doug Ford government likes more than trying to lock you into driving your car. It is amazing how addled with car brain Doug Ford in this government is. Almost 80% of the things they do seem to be based around the attempt to either make you drive more because it's now cheaper or because you don't have to renew your license plates anymore or because you 
they're going to build three more highways or because the changes to their housing plans just increases sprawl. Like every single one of these things, the number one outcome will be Ontarians spend more time in their vehicles. And like that to me is a terrible vision for the future. It No one is happy driving through traffic. And we're all we're doing is guaranteeing ourselves more traffic in 16 different ways with these plans. You know, and the carbon price thing, that's just conservative showboating and going along with a sort of axe the tax thing that Polyev is doing. Because like the next government doesn't actually have to do this. If the next government wanted to bring in a price on carbon, they can just repeal this law and then bring in a price on carbon. There's absolutely no way this will be effective. And we all may be, or be aware because of how much Polyev and the conservatives won't shut about it. We currently have a price on carbon right now that was instituted by the feds legally without any of these things. And you wouldn't have to do it again with, even if it happened a second time. Like literally nothing he is doing on this whole on that whole file is anything beyond prancing up and down saying I did something. Because, like, it's not actually that much harder at all to institute another president carbon if they wanted to. He just wanted to say he did something. No, exactly. Sorry, I just wanted to, I just, like, check dates. And, and, and my theory is falling apart based on the dates because we don't have another provincial election until 2026. But at first, my instinct was, oh, my God, Harper pulled out the omnibus bills, like, like a year or two before the election. And it's a way of like ramming through as much, as much change and as much, um, like, deregulation and policy alteration as possible because it's like it's right before an election they want to a get as much i i think of it in negative terms they want to do as much damage as possible but also on the flip side they want to be able to like again like like you said tout to their voters that like they're being effective administrators but it doesn't quite work out harper's omnibus bills i guess rolled out in like 2014 2013 oh well, you know what 2014 2013 election in 2015 rolling this stuff out in 2014 20 anyway yeah so it's close is, yeah Right. I will say these bills are not as, I think, unbelievable no, as no, Harper's they're, were. No, they're like, not like, like well, Harper's, Harper's like C45. It was it was devastating. Yeah, they, there was like yeah. everything. It was truly like Harper, as much as maybe you know, the Kennyism interview, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Harper times, but like he just went for it. Like he was like, what if oh, we had yeah. one bill that changed healthcare, the census and environmental regulations and fishes? Why not? Just, Whatever. Decimated everything and so so yes no you're right like it's like yeah it the these changes being introduced under these bills aren't quite as horrific or at least not as sweeping but but the, but yeah this is my new i don't know conspiracy theory some, i'm into some, it something about conservatives and omnibus bills there's something yeah there, there we go <laughs> hand wavy but the other to make sure we get to the other story we want to cover before we go to a music break and then return with our interview with jeremy appel is that climate change continues to be scary this is the, this is literally, I know, I'm sorry. I can't, I got nothing else. I, uh, my next, I I'm just going to say three scary things and then we can just freak out for a little Bye. bit and then we can go to music break. <laughs> That's what we're going to do here. The first one is the news that you've likely already heard, which is that fire, wildfire season has already begun in Alberta. They've officially decided that that is happening. It normally runs from March to October, which already is too long to be a season. Like, yeah, already. Like, too damn long, but, but like, but no, like you're like it's it's starting back up again. But also like so so you shared me this story from from the Weather Channel from such a neutral source. You know what I mean? 
And then all along the sidebar were videos from like October, November, December, January being like, fire's still still in Alberta. Fires haven't gone out yet. It's our first winter with fires. Like it's like, yes, fire season has started up again. But in a way, it's like fire season didn't go anywhere. It didn't. Like, yeah. Part of the reason they come back is that fires have been running underground in Alberta this entire time. There was, it is all Alberta has been on fire this entire time. The, I guess the only difference is that it's not a wildfire. It's a hiding out fire. But that is apparently why it's started back so quickly is that the fires never actually went out. The other piece of terrifying news, which I'll get to quickly, which was a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of whether or not or how aerosols were impacting ocean weather temperatures. And I sort of promised I'd keep an eye on it. And so I, I checked back in a couple of weeks ago or a week ago about this. And I have bad news, which is probably probably obvious, which is that we hit an all-time high. The average sea temperatures hit an all-time high in January by matching a previous high that we hit last August. And if the if the trend, it was 21.1 degrees. So the average of all sea, all, the, the whole ocean temperature was 21.1, which if we continued the same trends from then until August, in August, we'd expect to beat our highest ever by a half a degree. Like we're sort of on trend roughly to be about 21.6 by August. The thing about this to know, the change in sea average sea temperature is very low. Like the change between the last like decade or two decades before that is about 0.5. So like if you jumped from 0.5 in one year already from the highest, like that's like sort of catastrophic in terms of imagining it at the scale that it is in comparison to how warm it was, you know, even 20 years ago. And so that's fun. Yeah. No. And like and like for reference, it's like this is so dumb. But like the way I was like 21 degrees, what is that? And then I Googled it, flipped it into Fahrenheit and then thought of that within the context of like a swimming pool. And it's like 69, 70 degrees. And it's like that that's not warm, but that is still a swimmable pool. Like that is like that is like relatively warmish temperatures for an ocean to be. And and not that we have to get into this. If you're listening, you know that climate change is bad. You know that warming temperatures are bad. But like the most sort of like nutrient rich water is cold water. It's like, yes, warm water like facilitates a lot of like tropical fish and tropical growth and corals and, and good stuff like that. But like if 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 those tropical waters get too warm, you all know the corals bleach and then everything dies because they're like the backbone of the ecosystem. And and in northern climates, that cold water allows like plankton and algae to grow like it that's it, it that's what like supports like a blue whale living in in cold temperatures is, is because the water is cold is because it's nutrient dense so like oh my gosh Stefan well and and it, uh, yeah it's a huge bummer and the other thing is, that it does is it helps keep the ice from melting in the poles and so the yeah. warmer you get the faster that warming we will see the melting which is also bad but anyways we don't yeah. have to get too far into that because we're going to keep an eye on it. The El Nino year was expected to be bad. It's currently showing like it's not going to be great. And our fire season lasts forever. I feel um, like every friggin' year's an El Nino year. Give me a give me a break. Give me a break. <laughs> this is like somehow if my life is going south, friends are like, it's your Saturn return. And it's like, that's every year, according to you. It would keep I, I, a Saturn return or an El Nino year every year. There's got to be one other thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, we will hope that next week brings us 
it is the opposite of a Saturn return, like a Saturn leaving. Yeah. Like, yeah, but either way, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to suck next week, too. So, like, see you next. <laughs> see, see you in seven days, folks. It's going to be just as trash. We'll be here to talk about it. This has been the Trash Report, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. My name's Stephen Ostetter. I'm here with Lauren Latour. We will be right back with Jeremy uh, Appel and his book, Kennyism. Enjoy the music. I want, like, a garbage can audio. Oh, yeah. But... Like, like, a... <laughs> like, 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 stomp when you blow with, like, oh, yeah, you know, totally. trash <laughs> can lids together. <laughs> Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. And as previewed earlier on the show, we are here with a fellow Harbinger Knight. Harbinger? Just Harbinger. Is that it? Harbingerite. Harbingerite. All right. We are here with a fellow Harbingerite, Jeremy Pell, who is not only a host of a couple different shows on the Harbinger Network, including Big Shiny Takes, but he has just released a book called Kennyism about former Premier Jason Kenny. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Great to be here, as always. And so let's start with setting the scene. What was it about Jason Kenny that made you interested in writing a book about him? Well, I, I think that he's one of the most consequential conservative politicians in Canada of my lifetime. He's not only was he premier of Alberta for three years, which is not a long time, of course, in the grand scheme of things, but he played a key role in federal politics prior to that. First, as the executive director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation during the austerity craze of the 90s, which he, of course, cheered on with enthusiasm. Then as a reform member of parliament who played a key role in the long-term project of creating a united Conservative Party on the federal scene, 
the Conservative Party of Canada. And then once that party formed government, which he also played a major role in through reaching out to uh, various ethno-cultural communities and really cultivating ties with reactionary elements in them, he also was Harper's minister of well he he served various ministries in the harper government but the longest one and the most consequential one was as minister of immigration and citizenship where he really shifted the terms of canada's immigration and refugee system into one that was much less humanitarian and more on the one hand, tied to the needs of employers, but also very disciplinary in terms of people who, say, stayed past the terms of their visas or asylum seekers from certain countries. And all that was sort of the, the buildup to him coming back to Alberta and attempting to, like he did on the federal scene, unite to conservative parties in a much more truncated timeline than he did federally, right? The project of uniting reform, which became alliance with the PCs, took a decade. In Alberta, he did this in a year. And in doing so, he pursued sort of a track that he had used throughout his career of really pretending to be this populist who was speaking on behalf of the downtrodden masses goes back to his days with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, right? Talking about like we, the people and positioning them against what conservatives love to call special interests, which is literally just anything they don't like is the special interest that is out of touch from the masses. But this approach ultimately came back to haunt him in Alberta and led to his demise because he had to contend with forces that weren't as relevant on the federal scene, because to be a conservative federally in Alberta, I mean, anyone, I could, I could win as a federal conservative in, in Alberta, in most parts of Alberta, save for a, a few ridings in Edmonton and a couple in Calgary. But in Alberta provincial politics, you have to deal with this, this a significant proportion of the population, not a majority by any means, but a significant proportion that is separatist in that they don't just want someone to advocate for Alberta's interest in Ottawa. They want someone to either sever ties with Ottawa or significantly reconfigure them. And this is all, of course, tied up with the oil and gas industry and climate policy. But it was a tough sell for Kenny to come back to Alberta because he represented a riding in Calgary federally, but he didn't spend much of his time there. He was mostly focused on winning over uh, Im immigrant voters in the suburbs of Toronto and Vancouver. He was Harper's sort of lead on that file. But you come back from Ottawa to Alberta, and you talk about these Ottawa elites who are imposing this climate agenda on us and trying to keep the oil and gas industry down, and 
how equalization payments, which Albertans disproportionately pay into because Albertans have disproportionately high incomes, are then sent to Quebec, which opposes the pipelines we want to build. It's it's a really tough sell when you've literally spent the past 20 years in Ottawa as an embodiment of this elite that you have suddenly turned against. But people didn't care at first because he was going to cut their taxes, take the fight to Trudeau, and the international conspiracy of environmentalists he claimed Trudeau and the his and Kenny's NDP predecessor in Alberta, Rachel Notley, were in cahoots with. Awesome. And so that brings us to like the meat of this conversation, I think, which is, as you said, he was around these kind of politics for so long that some of the really core conservative messages that we identify as how the conservative movement attacks environmentalists all come up in this book. You have a chapter based around environmentalists. That's mostly we're going to come talking about. So folks are interested in everything else in this book. I'm not going to touch. So you don't have to go buy the book if they want to learn about anything beyond this climate change chapter. But I do think that you're right that in reading through the your pieces about this, so much of what he brought is exactly how the conservative movement, generally speaking, has come at environmentalists. And sort of the and so the three sort of responses that you see, you, they talk about that I'd love you to talk through with us, is the first one being that anything good for the oil industry is good for Albertans. And and then Canada as a whole. You know, you can sort of see that in, in both ways. And then the second is that our oil is better than other people's oil. You actually opened this chapter talking about the ethical oil argument. So, I'll, you know, I'll give you space for that in a second. But but that sort of idea that Canadian oil is is almost in itself like democracy incarnate and 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 feminist incarnate as some of the it's freedom truly, fuel. It's freedom fuel. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and that aspect that if our oil is going to make the world better in a way that all these other people's oil is making the world worse. And then the third, which we still see to this day everywhere, is this idea that environmentalists are sort of quote unquote foreign funded, which is always a little bit ironic to me because every oil co- company that basically operates out of the oil sands is is foreign owned at this point. And so this idea, but like, it, uh, I'm sure there's some smaller ones that are not, but like the huge bulk of it is. And so a little bit funny, but 100%, you hear that argument all the time, right? That's you still coming out of the argument in all these different ways. And and these three were all part of his playbook that, and they're still here today. So can you talk us through sort of his approach about this? Okay, but I regret to inform you, I am going to start by talking about Ezra Levine. Oh, oh. I'm not going to say anything that will get you sued, <laughs> don't worry. I don't say anything in the book that will get me sued. In fact, I reached out to Ezra for an interview because I thought it would be at least funny if he agreed. And he didn't respond, and I wasn't going to follow him up because I figured also because he he appears in the book earlier too when we're talking about the early days of the Reform Party because he was a key player in this populist Western Canadian movement that Reform embodied. But in terms of climate policy, he wrote this book in 2010, or it came out in 2010, he presumably wrote it earlier, called Ethical Oil, where he 
doesn't so much talk about the economics of the tar sands in Alberta, which at the time were perhaps a sound argument to make, certainly not now, but he shifts this criteria through which we evaluate energy projects from talking about, of course, from the oil and gas industry's perspective, how much money it's going to make them or how much damage is it doing to the environment, because that was pretty well known by that time. But to these metaphysical criteria, this ethical criteria, right? And so the the, the whole, the book is, it's obviously not a very good book, though it got rave reviews when it came out. Globe Mail awarded Best Business Book of the Year, and the star sent a reporter to sit down for him with this like really softball interview about, wow, you're really making this, this original argument in favor of uh, the oil sands. And I mean, I guess there's some truth to that. It is original, though. It, certainly the, the, the sort of moralistic arguments are very much uh, the, the bread and butter of this sort of neoconservative political philosophy so it's a it's a lot of whataboutism right that that is the bulk of it so he just cites human rights reports about the abuses of regimes in other oil producing nations iran nigeria iraq saudi arabia venezuela to it to, to essentially create this false binary that you you're either buying oil from Canada, which respects human rights, or you're buying it from these autocratic regimes elsewhere. And but at, in, early in the book, he talks about how actually tar sands oil is more environmentally friendly than these oils, these other types of oil too. So he does sort of hint at the environmental criteria. But then later on in the book, it's clear that when he talks about the environment, climate change isn't what he's talking about because he says, yeah, science isn't settled, doesn't matter. It's just a way for this environmentalist conspiracy that is being funded by wealthy interests in the United States to malign our industry that is like a core part of who we are as people when you see today with like that recent report that actually the environmental damage that the tar sands is doing to port mcmurray and surrounding areas is actually way worse like 63 times worse than industry is being reported that then is being reported by industry but this, so this book's a hit. It's very influential, right? The Conservative Party of Canada's in power at this time. Stephen Harper has Peter Kent as his environment minister. And the, they're making these arguments, right? That our oil is the most ethical in the world. Forget about economics. Forget about the environment. Forget about anything except for this metaphysical, ethical criteria that we are placing on our oil and gas. And Harper begins to target environmental charities with politically motivated audits. And 
Penny doesn't play a big role in this because he's at citizenship and immigration, then he's at employment, then he's at defense. But he he Ezra is his old buddy, so he he gives him he tells people to check out the book on Twitter, and that becomes the framework for this argument in favor of Tarsans that you still hear people make, including people who are nominally progressive, like the NDP here in Alberta, which also, when it was in power, constantly conflated the fate of the fossil fuel industry with the well-being of Alberta workers. I mean, if you remember the the, the total meltdown Rachel Notley and Shannon Phillips had when the federal NDP passed a resolution to simply talk about the Leap Manifesto. Right. And that this is an attack on Alberta that can't have all we can't have social democracy. We can't have pharmacare if we're not extracting more oil and paying very low royalties on it, which the NDP didn't increase, nor did they chart a path towards increasing them when they came to power and oil prices were low. So. Penny comes back, and around this time, someone named Vivian Krauss, this this blogger, the salmon blogger from BC, picks up on Ezra's thread and talks focuses on the the sort of environmentalist conspiracy angle to it, right? That these in this cabal of environmentalists that are funded by all these foreign interests are conspiring. To, to stymie pipeline construction, to persecute Alberta by shutting down their major economic engine. And this percolates, like Ezra's book, percolates its way through far-right media and then post-media. And then when Kenny is back in Alberta, and he's trying to unite the right, and he succeeds, and then creates the UCP, and there's a leadership race, which he wins under circumstances that are, remain under criminal investigation. He then takes the fight to Notley, right, in Trudeau, in this Notley-Trudeau alliance that he says is in cahoots with environmentalists. He's citing Vivian Krauss's research. Which, by the way, Vivian Krauss, by her own admission, at one point was received most of her income from speaking fees for the fossil fuel industry. And he then, when he is running, not just to be the leader of this Frankenstein party he created, but to be premier, he's then talking about all of these radicals that the NDP are appointing to decide the fate of energy policy in Alberta, like Sipora Berman being the most prominent example of Stand.Earth, who was actually appointed to the Oil Sands Advisory Panel by the NDP upon the suggestion of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers because they saw her as an environmentalist they could sit down with and, and find some sort of consensus. And that was the NDP's approach to climate and energy policy when it was in power. It was to make everyone happy, to have environmentalists and 
industry and indigenous peoples together at the same table and implementing these half-baked climate policies, which they did. And that, you know, famously, Rachel Notley and some of her ministers had the heads of the big five Alberta oil companies on stage with them and uh, indigenous leaders and environmentalists like Tsipora to announce their climate leadership plan. So they impose a, a cap on tar sands emissions, which was so high that it allowed emissions to continue to grow. But it was a cap, right? They introduced a carbon tax, you know, this market-based solution that is now crumbling before us to disincentivize high emissions economic activity. And they, I mean, they did take a lot of heat for it. And if you look at what the NDP was advocating prior to being in power, they were criticizing the PC government of Jim Prentice for hyper-focusing on pipelines, right? To, to just ship our jobs to Texas and talked about raising royalties about how these companies are making a killing and we're paying them. Sorry, they're paying us very little of what they could be. And it was, it wasn't radical by any stretch of the imagination, but it was mildly transformational what they're advocating, but they get to power. They convene this royalty review panel stacked with like industry people and comes back and it's like, yeah, no royalties are great just the way they are. And that was really uh, the last time the NDP talked about really challenging the fossil fuel industry. The rest of the time, they, they spent trying to build this bridge to them to create climate policy that industry can live with. Now, the CEOs who were up there on stage with Rachel Notley announcing this climate leadership plan were taken out by their boards right? They weren't around for law. And what, what ultimately happened, and I interviewed Sipora Berman for the book, and I, I think that it was probably one of the best interviews I did because she was so open with me. She, she said, I wasted my time with the NDP government. We're in a climate emergency. And all these climate policies that the NDP were being used to justify building more pipelines so they can export more oil to the developing world. And, but, but when Kenny uh, really ramps his campaign into high gear, I mean, Sipora Berman becomes an, an obsession of his, this really, and that's, I think what makes Kenny unique from many of his like-minded allies is just, this pure Manichaeanism he has that this is he's involved in this this struggle between good and evil and, and, and environmentalists are evil and so he goes after Tsipora Berman she gets torrents of anti-semitic and misogynistic abuse that she gets assaulted in the airport at Edmonton at one point thrown to the ground and spat on by some guy 
And then basically the NDP throw her under the bus and they reach an agreement that she's no longer involved with their oil sands advisory panel. And Kenny's attacks, but, 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 and then after that, Berman is, is more free to go back to her roots, which is on the activist left. And she's in BC, she's protesting against pipelines. And every time she would do that even after she wasn't involved with the Alberta NDP anymore. Kenny would bring that and be like, the NDP appointed this person to deal with the future of the oil sands, right? And so you have this process in which the NDP is constantly triangulating to try and keep industry on board but you have Kenny saying that, why do we need to do any of that? Let's just drill. And industry, of course, faced with someone who was going to let them do whatever they want unencumbered, or someone who is bending over backwards to obtain their support for the bare minimum. They're going to go with the guy who wants to let them do essentially whatever they want. And so in the UCP platform for the 2019 election, Kenny promises to launch an inquiry, a state-sponsored inquiry into Vivian Krause's theories that there's this international environmentalist conspiracy that is singling out Canada in particular, and to create this energy war room that would provide this rapid response to disinformation about the tar sands percolating in international media. And then he also, late in the NDP's tenure, they appointed a guy named Ed Whittingham to the Alberta Energy Regulator, who at the time ran the Pembina Institute, which is like a clean energy think tank that is very friendly towards the oil and gas industry, like very much in line with the NDP's approach, which is we want to work together with industry. The solution isn't to regulate them or order them to wind down production it's to work together with them and how we can make the energy transition, which is inevitable, the most profitable for them, right? That's his approach. That was the end. But 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 Kenny, when he was appointed, this is another, this is just like Sipora Berman. This is another foreign-funded environmentalist radical that the NDP is appointing to the Alberta Energy Regulator, which is probably the most toothless regulator anywhere in the world to decide the fate of the the oil sands. And so he launches this personal attack on Ed Whittingham in, in conjunction with, sorry, in sort of in line with how he personally targeted Sipora Berman and then promises these two policies that will use the, the weight of, of the state to target environmentalists and essentially intimidate them. 
in the NDP, in in uh, just one last thing, very close to the 2019 election, which of course Notley lost, she gave an interview to David Staples, who is like Kenny's like one of Kenny's biggest cheerleaders in the sort of Alberta punditry. And she said, you know what? I've I've been looking into what this Vivian Krauss is saying about environmentalists. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we should look into. So the the, the NDP, my point is, took the UCP's bait at every turn and facilitated this march towards the right of the entire political conversation, which I would say is Kenny's main legacy in both Canadian federal and Alberta politics. And nowhere is that more evident than on environment and climate policy. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. So I do want to at least get a chance to cover the war room before we before we wrap up, because the war room is, I mean, in all the ways that the other things I think were like, he successfully moved the NDP to the, to the right, as you've mentioned. He sort of set the way people talk about things a long way. The war room was a disaster. And at least from my outside perspective, like it seemed like they consistently kept tripping over themselves and embarrassing themselves at every turn. Um, but he still really held on to it. And it like it, it still to this day, you know, has this air to it. But I but but it didn't to me, it didn't work. But what's what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, I I, I think my view on this is perhaps counterintuitive in that. It's through all its stumbles, right? And I mean, we can talk about them. I was the first journalist they went after for a column I wrote for the Medicine Hat News saying that either the war room is a great threat to freedom of expression by intimidating people into silence, or it's an expensive joke at best. And I think since then, I've realized that those weren't mutually exclusive, that the entire purpose was to cast the shroud of suspicion over environmentalists. And so we can and should laugh at Jason Kenney making international headlines by calling a Netflix animated children's film about Bigfoot vicious and defamatory because it portrays the oil and gas industry in a negative light. or the tirade, the the worm went, the Canadian Energy Center, which the worm was officially incorporated, which, by the way, is exempt from freedom of information requests because it was privately incorporated, going on a tirade about the New York Times, and you can't, you just can't trust the New York Times, anything it writes about the tar sands, and saying it's been credibly accused of anti-Semitism, right? I mean, just all of these these ridiculous face plants that it made. But the purpose wasn't actually to offer coherent and convincing responses to the the growing cultural power of the environmentalist movement. It was to cast doubt in the public's mind, in the Alberta public's mind, right? It was very much for domestic consumption about environmental actors. And, and the, the inquiry that he promised, which also you could say was a disaster, multiple delays, 
its terms of reference kept changing because they didn't really have anything. I mean, Krauss's theories, I uh, just want to give a shout out to journalists uh, Sandy Garcino at the National Observer and Markham Hislop at Energy Media, who thoroughly debunked her, her talking points because not only, as you noted earlier, is the oil and gas industry itself the recipient of way more foreign funding than any environmentalist groups in Canada, but also environmentalist groups in Canada get barely any of their funding from American interests, let alone foreign. Most of that is coming from Canadian donors. But this was like, again, it, it, it is almost absurd. It starts, it's going to be this inquiry, compel testimony. They're going to debunk all these lies of environmentalists. And then it turns out that they're not actually, that it's all going to be written submissions. That the forensic accountant, Steve Allen, who's the UCP donor, they, donator, they appointed to lead this inquiry isn't equipped to actually uh, fact check environmentalist claims. And then the report finally comes out and it's like, yeah, not much to see here. Environmentalists, whether you agree with them or not, are exercising their civic duty on an issue they care deeply about, right? But again, that wasn't that, but, and so if we evaluate it based on its stated goal, and it's like, yeah, it's a joke. It's a failure. And it is. But if you look at the purpose it served, its actuality, it did have people talking about things that weren't the climate crisis as the crisis got worse and worse. Now, just one funny note about the 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 inquiry report was it actually went after the war saying that it was counterproductive that the 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 fights it picked weren't helping get the message of alberta's uh oil and gas industry out in a way that people take seriously but again that is accepting its purpose at face value which i don't think we should and so uh, Leo, i'm just going to go to the last question which is how if folks want to to learn more about this book, if they want to purchase it, they want to get it, how can they do so? You can do it wherever you buy your books. I would encourage you to purchase it from your local independent bookstore, which if they don't have it, they should be pretty easily able to order it. You can also get directly from the publisher, Dundurn Press. If you just Google Kenyism Dundurn Press, it should pop up. And yeah, feel free to post about it. Help get the word out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, share share your favorite your favorite Kennyisms if there are in fact. Do you have one? Do you have a as a, as a, as we sign off? Do you have a favorite Kennyism? I think there's one that stands out in my mind. I wouldn't call it my favorite, but I think it might be the most revealing. And that's when so. Going back to the Alberta NDP's time in power, they increased the minimum wage from like 10, 20 an hour when they um, were elected to $15 an hour. And that was the highest in Canada at the time. Now it's stayed the same. It's one, one of the lowest. But 
when Kenny came to power, he wasn't going to roll back the minimum wage completely because people don't like that and aren't going to vote for you if you like just outright diminish their wages. But young people are either can't vote or less likely to vote if they do and are more likely to vote NDP anyways if they do vote. So he created a two-tiered minimum wage for youth under 16, who some of whom would have, have been voting age by 2023, of $13 an hour. And he was asked about how he can justify creating this two-tiered wage system for people who are doing often the same work as their adult colleagues. And Kenny said, well, $13 an hour is a heck of a lot better than $0 the hour. Than $0 an hour, which is the alternative here. And I think that just says it all, right? About this very aristocratic mentality that Kenny has. That's fair enough. Well, we will leave it there. If you want to learn more, you can find Kennyism by Jeremy Appel at your local bookstore or purchased online from Dundurn Press. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time. Check it out, everyone. And check out Jeremy also in Big Shiny Takes on the Harbinger Media Network and also The Forgotten Corner. It's not easy being real. It's not easy.